everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Proustian Paths, a new podcast that will take you, the listener, on a gentle walk through a classic work of French literature, Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time. I am James Holden, and I will be your tour guide for this literary journey. As your audio tour guide, I will be offering new viewpoints on all the key moments in Proust's text, so that if you're a first-time reader, you'll be able to see it from its best vantage points and experience its beauty. Or if you're already a dedicated Proustian, you'll get a different perspective on the people and places you already know. Over time, and episode by episode, this podcast will form an audio guidebook of sorts to In Search of Lost Time. It's great to have you accompany me as we take these first steps along these Proustian paths. Before we depart, it's worth me saying something on how we will be proceeding. I'll always let you know which section of the novel we'll be traversing in advance. This means that if you want to, you'll be able to read along at your own pace at home. Or, if you'd prefer just to listen and experience Proust through my eyes, that's fine too. Now, as is to be expected, there are various editions and translations of the text. For the purposes of this podcast, I'll be using the edition published by Penguin in English under the general editorship of Christopher Prendergast, published in six volumes in 2002. When, at any point, I refer to page numbers, it's to this specific edition. Don't worry, though, it'll be easy to keep track of our literary journey no matter which edition or translation you have. The episodes will be structured around the natural scene breaks and pauses in the text. I'll be spending the first part of each episode mapping out the terrain to be covered. This will, if you like, produce something like a literary map that'll help us to orientate ourselves in our journey. Essentially, this map will be a summary of the events that take place in the passage under consideration. Then, having drawn this map, as it were, I'll mark onto it its key literary landmarks. These may be actual locations, but are more likely to be plot points, key themes and ideas, and other points of interest. These pinned ideas will be trig points that we can use to guide ourselves and our understanding, so that we don't get lost, or at least wander too far off the Proustian path. Then lastly, we'll take in the literary critical view. It's this last section that'll form the bulk of each episode. Today we'll be starting at the very beginning of the book. From there we'll be walking our way through to the end of the passage describing the narrator's goodnight kiss. In the Penguin edition, this section can be found in The Way by Swans, from page 7 to the line break on page 46. So if you've got your literary walking boots on, and your flask of lime blossom tea ready, let's head out on the first leg of our way through Proust. We'll begin by mapping out this part of the journey. The Literary Map The novel opens with the unnamed narrator, a man of advancing years, describing how at some point earlier in his life, although we don't know when, he would go to bed early, fall asleep, and then wake up again moments later. He recounts in detail his confusion between the states of sleeping and waking, describing how falling asleep can cause us to lose track of where we are and even who we are, so that when we do wake up, we have to rebuild both those things. Specifically, the narrator recalls how, upon waking, he would suppose himself, however fleetingly, however drowsily, 
to be in one location and then another, different places he has stayed during his lifetime. The narrator then recalls how, after fully waking, he would continue to remember those locations and times, only now in a more deliberate act of memory. My memory had been stirred, he says on page 12. One of the places he would recall, he says, is Combray. The rest of our opening section is concerned with his memories of this place. They are not complete, at least not yet, but instead revolve exclusively around the act of sleeping and waking, continuing the theme being developed. As he later says, Everything about Combray that was not the theatre and drama of my bedtime had ceased to exist for me. A quote that's on page 47 if you want to find it. Specifically, the process of going to bed at Combray is revealed to have been a site of psychological trauma for the young narrator, one that persists into the present. He recounts the fear and sadness he felt at being parted from his mother each night in Combray. These emotions were only heightened on those nights when they would be visited by others, in particular their neighbour Charles Swan. We are shown the family gathered outside on the veranda, and the moment Swan arrived. Sent to his room earlier than expected, and without the goodnight kiss that would have acted as a palliative to his nervousness, the narrator employs a ruse to have his mother come to him. He has a letter taken to her by the servant Françoise. No reply is brought to this letter. Knowing that he is now going to be unable to sleep until he has seen his mother again, the narrator waits until Swan leaves, and then sneaks out into the hallway to await her as she makes her way to bed. Initially cross at finding him there, she ends up spending the night in his room, reading to him, to calm his nerves. Literary Landmarks There are a number of places and points that I'd like to pin onto this hastily sketched literary map before we begin. We'll use these to orientate ourselves as we head out. Firstly, there's the path into Proust's literary world, which is so difficult to traverse that many readers turn back straight away. There's the narrator's bedroom, in which he goes to bed early, and in which, upon waking, he loses track of geography. This is a space where the walls fade away and rearrange themselves. Then there's the rest of the house in Combray, with its garden, its back gate whose bell rings when Swan enters, its veranda, and its upstairs hallway, all of which, taken together, form the scene of the drama of the goodnight kiss that is refused because of Swan's visit. The Literary Critical View Now that we've got a literary map, and have marked a few points of interest on it, it's time to head out on our journey along these Proustian paths. As is so often true of journeys, the first few steps are the most challenging. This opening section of In Search of Lost Time is, in many ways, the most difficult in the whole sequence of seven novels. It is, of course, our first encounter with Proust's famously swirling and difficult prose. This, more than anything, 
is perhaps the thing that will slow down new readers as they take their first steps along the way. So don't worry if it takes you a while to get into your stride. There are sentences here that last for what would be paragraphs in other writers' texts. Sentences that are punctuated by all manner of semicolons and dashes, marking out subclauses and parenthetical details. Sometimes it's actually necessary to read a sentence twice just to determine the through-line of sense. In truth, nothing is really of secondary importance, and that's what makes the novel's style so difficult. Nothing is mere accessory. So the first steps in this literary journey are difficult because of the swirling prose. Nor is this the only thing that's swirling around us, making our way more difficult. The narrator begins his story by recalling how, at some unspecified point in his life, he would fall asleep and then wake up again, not knowing where he was. Describing this, he writes, A sleeping man holds in a circle around him the sequence of hours, the order of the years and worlds. He imagines many of the places he has been in his life. He mentions Balbec, Dancière, Transonville, Cambrai, Madame de Saint-Loup's house, his great-aunt's house, and more in just a few pages. The narrator doesn't know where he is. Nor at this point do we as readers. These place names swirl around us, buffeting us, threatening to blow us off the path. We don't know where these places are. Where is Balbec? Where is Doncière? We have no way of knowing. Their names can't help orientate us, and they are not yet labelled on our literary map. Nor, incidentally, would we find them on a real map of France. Well, that's not quite true anymore. Combray is loosely based on the town of Ilier, a real-world location that has now actually changed its name to Ilier-Combray. Nevertheless, the places mentioned at this early stage of the narrative are just so many names. It's worth pointing out here that the narrator will actually go on to discuss the way place names create images in our minds of the places themselves. However, that's for a future episode. For the time being, for us as much as for the waking person, these fictional towns remain half-formed, unreal, insubstantial, dreamlike. They lack any physical coordinates. Sure enough, this is all quite disorientating for anyone setting out on their first journey through Proust. It can feel as though you're immediately lost, that you've already lost the path. Many readers immediately turn back. I'll admit that these stylistic diversions and narrative obstacles are challenging for an audio tour guide like myself too. But trust me, it's okay to feel a little lost amongst all these places. I promise that if we keep pushing forward, we'll find our way, and all these villages and towns will, in time, appear on our literary map. We'll visit each place. We'll stay there for long stretches. Balbec in the second and fourth volumes, Doncière in the third, and so on. The narrator doesn't only mention places in these opening pages of text. He also mentions a number of individuals, inhabitants of these mysterious locations, and his memories of them, neighbours, family, friends, and relatives. Again, we don't know any of the people to whom he casually refers. Who is Charles Swan? Well, that is a question to which we'll begin to get some answers in this first section. 
then there are the references to someone called Madame de Saint-Loup. It won't become clear who this person is until the final volumes of the novel, thousands of pages later, even though without realising it, we'll meet her in just a few pages, and we'll spend a considerable amount of time with her in the first two volumes. More challenging still is that, for all that the narrator confides in us about his life, we know so very little about him. No David Copperfield-style introductions here. What is the name of Proust's narrator? We don't know. What does he look like? Again, we don't know. How old is he when he's narrating his story, and how old was he when he went to bed early? It's not stated. And I'll let you all know now. It never will be. We'll never get proper answers to any of these questions. Let's be clear, though. These diversions, these obstacles, and these omissions of personal details are not signs of bad writing, of Proust not knowing what he was doing. The seemingly tossed away and circling references to places as yet unknown aren't a sign that Proust himself didn't know where he was going. The place names aren't placeholders, mentioned here by the author with a view to thinking about them later. Proust didn't say to himself, I'll add a reference to a place here and think about what that place might be like later. Instead, right here at the beginning, we travellers through Proust's work should be comforted by the fact that everything is already known and plotted, in terms of both narrative and geography. There is a path being laid out for us, a way through the landscape of the book. Proust had a better narrative map than us. Our evidence? Well, just as the novel begins with both beginnings and endings, the end of a day, the act of falling asleep and waking up, so too did Proust begin his writing of In Search of Lost Time with both the beginning and the end. We know that he wrote, or at least claimed to have written, the beginning and the end together. He declared very early on in the writing and publication process that the work was already finished, by which he meant that he had sketched out the conclusion of his search. The object had already been found. Proust knew where all the places mentioned in this first section were. He knew all these people and their lives. So, dear listener and fellow traveller, take heart. Let's walk on. The narrator muses on falling asleep and waking up. He thinks about the mistakes of understanding to which these everyday acts can lead. How, for a moment, the sleeping and waking worlds can become confused for the waking person how the borders between them can be blurred, and how, as a result, the waking person's own physical and temporal place in the world can become uncertain. Proust recalls, specifically, how upon sleeping and waking, the ranks of time and space, quote, can be mixed up, broken. He dramatises this idea with anecdotes first from his own life, and then in more generalised scenarios, when we do such and such, when one does, etc., the author's commentary here is typical of all that we'll find in the books to come. It's a close examination of an everyday event that we normally fail to consider. The narrator makes connections between the uncertainty caused by sleeping and the act of reading. He twice describes falling asleep whilst reading, on pages 7 and 9. Additionally, he suggests the hours that circle around a person as they sleep are read by the person as they wake. It is reading, for Proust, 
amongst many other things, that can unsettle time, place and identity. It's also an act of reading that can settle them down once more. There's much that could be said about this. Proust's contemporary, Sigmund Freud, made a clear connection between creative writing and dreams, for instance. Suffice it to say here that the role of art and literature in memory will become one of the great themes of Proust's work. It's when the narrator starts to recall his memories of Combray that things begin, for the first time, to coalesce just a little. We are presented now with a more fixed geography, a house, its veranda, its garden with its two tidy roses, a staircase, a landing and a bedroom. We'll see in the next two episodes how this geography eventually expands to take in the rest of the town. Initially, however, we are told that, for the narrator, this familial space is all that remained of Combray. We meet the people that occupy it, the narrator's family, his mother and father, his grandmother and grandfather, his great-aunt, his grandmother's two sisters, Celine and Flora, their servant Françoise, and the figure to whom I now want to turn, their neighbour, Charles Swan. Who is Charles Swan? There are many answers to this question, as the text itself makes clear. In effect, the response to this question depends on both who you are and when you are. The way that the narrator's family members see Swan is different to how the narrator sees him. And, we are told, how the narrator sees Swan when he's a child, during the drama of the bedtime kiss, is very different to how he will come to see him in his youth, and how he will later understand him as an adult. He admits this much himself, and discusses it at length in another analysis that unpicks an everyday fact with great insight. Put simply, Charles Swan is a neighbour who lives in the nearby estate of Tonsonville near to Combray, along the Mesiglise Way, the path that the family call Swan's Way. He's married and has a young daughter. He's the son of a stockbroker, and it's in that role and social station that the narrator's family principally see him. As the narrator writes, quote, Monsieur Swan the father was a stockbroker. Swan the son would find he belonged for his entire life to a caste in which fortunes varied, as in a tax bracket, between such and such fixed incomes. That's on pages 19 to 20. The narrator's family condescend to Swan, and his behaviour to them plays to that condescension. He's gentle and kindly, providing them with thoughtful gifts and disavowing his own cultured intelligence in their company. However, unknown to them, Swan has in fact become a member of Parisian high society, counts international royalty amongst his friends, and is a much-respected member of the Faubourg Saint-Germain. Swan will become one of the most important characters in the whole sequence of novels. He'll become the narrator's central reference point in the early stage in his narrative, and his affairs will provide a template for the narrator's own understanding of love, jealousy and grief. To return to the opening pages of the book, we know that there's more than one Swan. Of course, the young boy of the story wouldn't have realised this at the time being described. For him, Swan is only a neighbour whose arrival causes anguish because of what it will deny him, his mother's goodnight kiss. Specifically, we are told of one night when the young narrator was sent to bed earlier than expected and without his kiss, and how the anguish caused him to engage in a kind of subterfuge involving a letter being sent to his mother via Françoise. The narrator remarks on page 33 
that he assumed Swan would have laughed at the note he had sent down to his mother. I thought, he writes, Swan would surely have laughed at the anguish I had just suffered if he had read my letter and guessed its purpose. And yet the mature narrator is able to show that this was an error in his younger self's understanding. He goes on to draw parallels between his own childish heartache and that mature heartache Swan experienced in his love life, declaring, in his case, it was the anguish that comes from the feeling that the person you love is in a place of enjoyment where you are not. That's also on page 33. The narrator's subterfuge doesn't work, and so, upon Swan's departure, he desperately confronts his mother in the hallway, is caught by his father, and is ultimately forgiven. His mother spends the night reading to him to comfort him. The narrator says on page 40 that the sobs he could not control that night, quote, have never really stopped. He adds that he can hear them now as life is quietening down around him. This is indicative of a number of things. Firstly, this quiet time is the time of narration, not the time when he would go to bed early. He is an old man at the very end of his life, and he is now remembering his earliest youth and writing his book. The life that is quietening down is also that of our actual author, Proust, who withdrew from the fashionable society that he used to frequent in order to write his novel. Proust was, famously, fastidious about his quiet, going so far as to line the walls of his room with cork. The fact that the narrator's youthful sobs have not really stopped since that night also underlines the extent to which this scene acts as a central drama. It's the exact drama that will continue to play out as we move forward. We have already been told that Swan's experience of love involved the same heartache. It will also be a significant reference point in all the narrator's subsequent relationships. It's here that I want to end the first leg of our walk along these Proustian paths. Let's pause. Let's rest, maybe even take a nap. I'm sure that if we stop here we won't, like someone sleeping, forget who we are or even where we are. We'll not lose our place. Instead, we'll continue our journey along the ways through Proust at exactly this point in episode two. Then, we'll be partaking in a brief cup of tea and a madeleine cake. If you want to plot out the way ahead, in our next episode we'll be looking at the passage from the line break on page 46 in the Penguin edition to the end of chapter one, which is on page 50. It's a short section. It's probably also the most famous in the whole sequence of novels. That just leaves me to say, thanks for joining me on this first leg of our long literary walk. I hope you have enjoyed the literary critical view and are looking forward to what lies ahead. Please do consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review or a comment. It'll help the podcast reach more people. You can also connect with the show on social media. Just search for at Proustian Paths on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to get in contact with the show, you can send an email to proustianpaths at gmail.com. It'd be great to hear from you. I hope you can join me again next time, as we head further through the landscape of Proust's great novel. From here on, the Proustian path becomes a little easier to tread. <laughs>